chapter 6. Lest I forget about it, that um, when we do communion, typically, uh, I, I usually forget this time and time again, that if uh, you are struggling with the elements that, that we use here because of, what do you call, gluten issues, usually there's some back at that counter, so uh, help yourselves. And I always forget, they tell me to re- remind you, and I forget about that. We're in Romans chapter 6. If you need sermon notes, we have those available for you. And we're going to try to just pick up where we were this morning and talking. And if you weren't here this morning, uh, beg your pardon, but what we're doing is we are doing a series on God forbids, and there's two of them that show up in Romans 6. And the two uh, just go back to back. And so let me just catch right where we were, where we ended up this morning. In Romans chapter 6, Paul's message was basically in response to that comment is the idea is for chapter 1, uh, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul's response is absolutely not. God forbid that you would do this. Stop choosing to sin. And then he makes those comments that we looked at this morning in the first 14 verses. You don't have to sin. You're dead to the sin. You, uh, you have been yoked with Jesus Christ and you have a higher calling. You're to be walking in newness of life. Don't go back and continue in the sin. And then he talks about how we, Jesus Christ was raised by the glory of God, verse 4. Even so, then we should walk in newness, that same power of God that's, that helped Christ to raise that is in you, then that should help you not to sin at all. And yet the problem is we still struggle with sin. And even though this has been written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, then why is it we still have a problem? I think, and just throwing this out, I think if I were doing a Bible study with a new convert, I'd mention these types of things. I would tell them that this, though I've been forgiven, it's still a battle. And part of the reason is, one, we like it. We like some of the things that tempt us. I am not, as I mentioned this morning, I am not tempted to blow a diet via anything with coconut. But if it has M&Ms on it, I mean, that's one of the five main food groups. Okay, so M&M's is a temptation. Cookies, the, the problem we have with the reenactment is you bring cookies. And I have access to the kitchen during the week that, uh, you know, that we're setting up. And those things are a temptation for me because I like them. You have the same thing. You have troubles, uh, trials, and temptations because there's some things you like. And so that makes it more difficult. There's another thing, another reason why oftentimes we keep on struggling with sin is we think we get away with it. We're not Pinocchio, where all of a sudden he says something about, you know, he didn't see that, that sign there where he shouldn't park and his nose gets bigger. You know, it's not like those, the lying, you know, that he sits there and says, you all have potential, and he looks at the person in the front row, and I see great potential in you, and his nose is growing. You've seen those commercials. You've seen, we're not Pinocchio where, where it's so obvious that all of a sudden on our head there's a flash that says, lying, lying, cheating. We get away with it at times, we think, and so we do it. We, we think we can still, and we ignore the consequences. You know, there's, there's that character, that hero of Scripture by the name of Joseph, that when he was in Egypt, and he could have gotten away with it, uh, that was that temptation that came to him, and here he was in a foreign land, no family members, and surely if he had an affair with Potiphar's wife, she isn't going to un, you know, un, unveil this or discover it. He could have gotten away with it, but he says, how should I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He knew that God saw, he knew that this wasn't something that he was going to get a pass on. And then there's this reason that sometimes, sometimes we do sin by just redefining it. We say it isn't sin. It isn't something that bad. And it isn't something that you know, is so evil and you know, my lie isn't a big lie. Or my lying on my, my cheating, my dishonesty with my tax forms, it's not, you know, the government has a lot of money already. 
You know, the, the idea that I'm telling an untruth at work and I'm being braggadocious in the job application and I end up embellishing and kind of just not telling the full truth, that, that's not such a big deal. And so we categorize those things. We're almost like Castro. Anybody ever hear of this guy historically? So several years ago, they were doing a, when he was still alive and still able to do it, they did a uh, friendly competition in a baseball game between Venezuela and Castro's uh, home, home area, Cuba. So they had a lot of their, their baseball players there, and it was a big, you know, a big to-do as far as the international press, and they were there. And so it came at the part of the game that Castro himself came up to bat. And when he came up to bat, they changed pitchers. The Venezuelan president went out to pitch to him. And so he's standing there at the base and you know, home plate ready to bat. And the Venezuelan pitcher, he, his first pitch didn't even make it to home plate. You know, and so all the Cubans are, you know, you know, they're hosting the game. They're just, you know, they're having a grand old time. The next one was right down the middle, strike, the umpire calls. Then the next one is a ball way outside. The next one, and it goes to the point, it's, you know, it's a full count, 3-2. And three balls, two strikes. And Castro stands there and here comes the pitch. And he just stands there, and it's right down the middle. The umpire says, strike, you're out. Castro looks at him and says, you forgot where you're at. That's a ball. And he walked to first place, first base, and everybody laughed and cheered because he rewrote the rules and could get away with it. Sometimes we think we can rewrite rules. And that makes this whole issue that Paul is writing about, makes it more difficult when we have that type of frame, that type of thinking in our mind, that I can get away with, it's not that bad, or we rewrite the situation. So he writes and he says, listen guys, you've got to just stop. You've got to stop. And what happens as he's continuing this discussion, he knows there's going to be another, another question asked. Maybe it's been asked already by some of the crowd. And so he anticipates it or he's answering a question that came to him. And he mentions it now, starting with verse 14, 15, 16. Actually, it shows up right there. And it's the second half of the chapter. And he responds with another God forbid. This time, the question is a little bit different. It says, and I'm jumping down to verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Let me phrase what he is going at with this. He's basically, it's a little bit of a twist from verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This has a little bit of a, a different nuance. This has the idea, since we're no longer under all those rules of the Old Testament to live by, can we live any old way we please? Can we do something? Is there, is there any kind of structure here? Is there any type of restrictions? We are free, basically, to do whatever we want to do, Right? We can just kind of do these things and grace will be there. And he's going to respond with that same answer. He's going to say, God forbid, that's not true. And his comments are going to make it very clear that living in the age of grace does not allow us to live with like we're lawless, to live like we have the license to do whatever we want, similar to that antinomianism we talked about this morning. And what he does in the following discussion is a very interesting development. He makes the comment, I'm going to speak to you as men. What he means by that, when he uses that phrase, is I'm going to speak to you about something that you all understand as people in our human society. Like, like we would in another area of our life, and he's going to talk about socioeconomic issues, and he's going to talk about people relationships, slavery is the thing he's going to talk about. And he makes that as an analogy of talking about that spiritual responsibilities we have to follow and live under the direction of God and not just live any way we want. 
Let me read the text, then let's kind of make some statements through. Because what he does in this text, as he's answering this and saying, yes, we have some code to live by, what he's doing in there is he's going to repeat some of the similar thoughts again and again, just to for repetition's sake. So let me read it, and then we'll, we'll highlight some of the thoughts that are repeated. For Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Oh, well, if we're not under the law, shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Can we do anything we want? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto righteousness or of obedience unto righteousness, or sin unto death, excuse me, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's, let's uh, remind ourselves what he's doing. He's using an illustration that they would better understand than you and I would understand. And that's slavery in that area, that part of the world. Everybody in the world, everybody in the church back in Rome, they would know about this. It was a common part of their life because, you know, in the ancient, ancient Rome, one-third of the citizens in Rome were considered slaves, and some estimate even higher than that. And so they used to have, in the early days of Rome, the slaves used to wear, wear a certain colored tunic that would stand out so that if you were in the, you know, down, downtown Rome and you were at Boscos, you would know who a slave was and who wasn't. They stopped doing that. In this, right around this time in history, they stopped having the slaves wear certain common color to distinguish they were slaves for one reason. Can you imagine what it was? The slaves would realize how, my, how powerful they were and how many there were. So they wanted them to blend in and not recognize one another so quickly so as to not encourage any kind of a revolt. And so what happens is the people in the, who were slaves in Rome, which was a lot of them, there's a number of ways you could become a slave. Some of this is very despicable the way they did it. But some of it is just you know, the consequences of battle and of warfare, that if the Romans went in, they conquered a region, then they could capture the entire city or different peoples who revolted and make them slaves, they and their families. That was common. The another one was to be born to slave parents, then you were going to become a slave as well. So it would pass on from generation to generation. There is record that many of the people sold themselves into slavery to deal with their own debts. Or what they would do is they wanted to have a better life than what they were having. They could sell themselves to slavery. And if all of a sudden, rather than live in the gutter and in the ghetto area, if I sold myself to the talents and they all of a sudden became my masters, they would have that responsibility caring for me. And so all of a sudden, Deb and I might have a better lifestyle being their slave than if we were on our own. And so there's cases of that, that to ensure 
the protection, the provisions, people would sell themselves into slavery. There was another common form of, when I say common, it, it happened um, not daily but quite often in the Roman world. It's called exposure. This one I find heinous, but this was a reality of what happened in Rome. In Rome, that what they could do is exposure was a way that recognizes that you dads had life and death over your children that were born from or in your household, that you sired those children. And you had the legal right to declare whether or not that child continues to exist beyond his birth. And so what would happen is if the Roman father opted to say, I'm not going to put the child to death, but rather we could expose the child. What that means is they could have the child taken down to the marketplace and put on one of the bimas or one of the platforms down there, and then whoever wanted could have the child. Well, that became quite a business that the slave traders, they would grab up any of those babies that were left there because they, that was going to be free for them to get a child that they could just nurture for a little period of time, but that child would then become a slave that they could turn around and sell, or they could be used in whatever market, and even in some of the most vile markets that they could, you can think of, uh, that they would use and employ these individuals whose parents had given them up. And so there was also in history, parents would sell their own children into slavery so that they could buy Roman citizens for themselves. Citizenship would mean all of a sudden I have so many other privileges and pleasures. So in Rome, when we think about slavery, it, it just has a, a bad taste in our mouth. That So when Paul uses that illustration, some of the people there might just revile, but keep this in mind, that in that culture, it wasn't the norm to brutalize, to, uh, to beat, to abuse your servant because they're your property. And so it wasn't as common as what we often think, that there was that brutality. And in fact, when you think about slavery under the Jewish system, it was there, it existed, and um, as bad as we don't like the idea of slavery at all, under the Jewish system, the slaves had a lot of protection. If you were a Jewish individual and you had slaves in your household, you had to be careful how you treated them. You, could, uh, you can look it up and find out that you couldn't treat your slave harshly. If you beat your slave, you yourself could be taken to court. You could be penalized. You could be beaten. If you harmed your slave and you brought about the death of a slave within your care and in your household, you would suffer serious consequences. And so in that, in that Jewish system... There was protection, there was provisions for that, and there was even the idea made that no Hebrew was to be lifelong in their slave servanthood to another person. They could choose to. Do you remember how that worked? If you, because of your indebtedness, became a slave to somebody else here, and they treated you so well, and you were better off by living in their household, do you remember what you could do? You could voluntarily submit to become their lifelong slave, and the way you showed that was, yeah, you'd go to the doorpost, and you'd have your ear pierced. Okay, and then they would, that would be a mark that you've chosen to, in response because you have a good relationship. And those types of situations existed quite a bit. Abraham and Eliezer, for example, some of those cases. So when we think about slavery, as we approach this passage and this illustration, keep in mind that it would be well, they would understand all of Paul's terms. They would have a full comprehension of this. And even though they knew that it wasn't ideal, 
For many of those individuals, it had become a common way of life. For many of those individuals, probably half of the church were servant slaves to somebody else. And for some of them, it wasn't a bad deal. It was better than what they had if they were on their own living on the street. As well, they were well taken care of, and many of the masters were being careful for them. And slaves were often given quite high responsibilities. So when you and I read this text, and we're reading it like the people of the first century, we wouldn't gravitate to say, yeah, yeah, great, slavery is a good thing. But we have to keep in mind that for a lot of those people... It wasn't that heinous institution that they would say, okay, this is my life goal to get out of. And so he's using, when he says become a slave to Christ, their response would not be reprehensible to that terminology. They would understand serving Christ is a really good thing. It's like serving a really good master. And so keep that in mind as we read through some of this material. Okay, so let's uh, jump into it, okay, and let's re restate some phrases in, in application of what he's just written. What he's talking about is lessons to these believers. He is saying this, believers are freed, we mentioned this morning, you're freed from the power that, uh, that sin had in the past. That's been a theme in the very first part of the chapter. It's a common theme. He mentions you were servants of sin. He mentions you were made free from sin. He mentioned when you were the servants of sin. He had mentioned now being made free. So several verses, he's repeated this idea. You used to be under the power of sin, but now you're freed from that power of sin. And so the discussion will go this way. In the past, you were in bondage that had dominion over you. You had to sin because sin was your master. You had no choice. Do you remember how he said it in this one phrase? Um, verse 20, when you were servants of sin, you had no choice. You couldn't do righteousness. It was, it was so controlling. You would struggle to have done what, what was right because sin was in such control of your life. Now in the present, you've been made free from the domination of sin. And so therefore, what you need to do is you need to respond by not giving in to that old master. And in fact, verse 17, he says, but God be thanked that you were servants of sin and aren't anymore. And so he's reminding us that, hey, listen, this idea of getting together and giving thanksgiving, have a Eucharisto type of a service where you're giving thanks. One of the things we want to remember, we're giving thanks that Jesus Christ freed us from sin's bondage by giving his body and his blood. And so he says there should be those moments of thanksgiving. And in the present, he says, now I want to remind you, you no longer have to serve. You have a new master. And he's mentioned that in verse 18 already, where he says, being then made free from sin, you have become servants of righteousness. In verse 22, where he's made, but now may, he says, but now being made free from sin, you became the servants of God. So he's reiterating that new thought. But he adds something here. With the newfound freedom that you have, you have new rules that you are supposed to follow. He mentions it, and we're going to develop this more later on. He mentions it in verse 17. Where in verse 17, he, uh, he alludes to the idea that there's a new form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. You're not freed from everything, but you believed because you heard new truth. And this new truth is going to have some, some codification over you. It's going to have some rules and regulations over you. Then he's, let's make a second statement from summary of what he's talked about. Being free does not mean you can do whatever you want anytime you want. And that's a truism that we need to gra grasp when it comes to Christianity. Being freed from sin doesn't mean you can do whatever you want anytime you want. Now, let, me, let me see if I can give you just an illustration of this. We are, in our society, do we consider ourselves free people? Are Americans free? 
For the most part, we are. Okay. So we have the freedom, and yet do our freedoms have limitations? Okay, let me, let me illustrate that. Okay. We have the freedom to say yes or no to certain jobs. You can go, you can go and say, okay, I'm going to apply here. I want to work here. And they might say, now, once you said yes that you're going to work there, do you have certain rules and regulations you need to abide by? Like what? What time you show up? Days of the week? The job you do? Okay. So you're free to choose that job, but you're not free to do the job any old way you want. Would that grant it? Is that a truth? Okay. Let's do it this way. You're free to choose where you want to live. Okay. You may choose to live in that community and say, some of you say, I want to choose to live in a community that's 55 and older. So once you choose to live in that 55 and older community, you're free to do whatever you want with your yard. No, most of those developments, do they have restrictions? Okay, you have freedom, but there's, there is some type of limitations to your freedom. But you have the freedom to say, yes, I will live under that, or no, I won't. He says here, like this one, you can join a club. You can join band. You can join, go to school and say, you have the freedom to be able to join you know, a sports team. Once you join that sports team, have you given up freedoms to the coach? Is that true? Okay, that's a truism. We, we can illustrate it like you can choose schools. I had the freedom to choose whether I went to this college or that college. But once I got to saying, okay, I'm choosing this college, I gave up some of my freedoms to live by the rules of that campus. And so we can give other restaurants. You have the freedom to go and decide where you want to eat. You can go and eat at Wendy's or Burger King or you know, Longhorns or whatever you want. You have the freedom. But that doesn't mean you can walk in and, and then have the freedom to go to the kitchen. You know, and you, you can't, you know, and some of us have done it, you don't walk into one restaurant and order a Big Mac at Burger King. Okay? There's, there's limitations there. The freedoms have some restrictions to the menu, to the service, to, you know, some of them have restrictions to attire. Okay? They, we, can, we can do that to well, all of you. We've got the freedom to drive in America. Yes! I'm free to drive any old where I want. Is there limitations to your driving? Speed, okay, type of vehicle at times, you know, what, what side of the road? You can't even drive on the left side of the road, okay? So you don't have those freedoms. So where you spend your money when you go to the stores, we can just list, list a whole bunch of them. You know, when you say, I have the freedom to worship, yeah, you do. You have freedom to worship. But when you come into the worship center, can you do anything you want, well, the New Testament even said in 1 Corinthians 11, restrict even some of those individuals who were talking about how they wanted to worship by standing up and speaking in tongues. So we have freedoms, but with all those freedoms, there's limitations. So what is freedom? Freedom is the choice of what you're going to serve. That's really what, free, what we're freed here. We are freed to serve a new master. You became the servants of righteousness. You became the servants of God. And so he's saying you've been freed from sin, and now you have the choice to serve a new master. And so that's great, which brings us to number three. Being spiritually free means you can now choose daily who you will serve. 
when you were unsaved, you didn't have that choice. You couldn't serve righteousness as we already read twice now in verse 20. But now that you're born again, the day you got saved, all of a sudden you were freed from the domination, the reign of sin in your life, and that gives you the ability to be able to say, I can choose not to sin. I can choose to serve Christ. I have that freedom now. But let me add to that. Let's, let's develop that a little bit. When you're spiritually free, this is your choice of who you're going to serve every day. Look at what words he uses in verse 16, in verse 19, where he says, you yield yourselves servants to obey. And he's leaving and he says, now that you're a believer, you, here you are. You choose whether you're going to serve the way of sin or serve Jesus Christ. Verse 19, now yield your members you do this. You yield your mind, your body, your time, your talents. And so it's a personal choice that you make yourself. That you decide whether or not I'm going to be able to, I want to serve Christ. Or whether or not I'm going to continue to serve and stay in some of those old habits. And you will be responsible for the choice. He's making it very clear. But then he adds this. He's making it clear. You can only serve one master. Just one master. He's, he's alluded to that when he says in verse 16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves, there's your choice, servants to obey, his, his servants you are to whom you obey. There it is. You, you can only serve one at a time. He says, whether it be, okay, sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness, that you choose who you will serve this tomorrow. You're going to wake up, you're going to make a choice, and in that choice, you're responsible for the outcome of it, and you're going to be able to only serve one or the other. You're going to serve your sinful desires, or you're going to serve Jesus Christ. You can't serve both at the same time. It's an impossibility. Jesus affirmed that when it came to even like that idea of money. He says, you know man can serve two masters. He will either prefer the one and, and kind of put down the other or vice versa. And so you, when it comes to this daily decision of living for the Lord, of yielding yourselves to the Lord, keep in mind, you have a choice. You're responsible for what you choose. And in this choice, you choose one of two masters. You cannot play both sides at the same time. It's just an impossibility. Let me add another thought to it. Your choice always has consequence. You have the freedom to choose, and when you choose, there's consequences. That's what he elaborates throughout this whole text. That he talks about, if you choose sin unto death, obedience unto righteousness, when you serve sin... Okay, when you were under it, you, you didn't produce righteousness. It was an impossibility. When he talks about, in verse 21, when, when you were not following righteousness, you had a fruit that you are now ashamed of. There was a consequence that came. And then he says in verse 22, where he makes that comment, he says, but now you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And then he adds this to these individuals. He's talking, he says, and remember this, the wages of sin is... Death. Okay, we know this verse. We, we quote this verse. It's a wonderful verse that helps us when we're sharing the gospel. But within the context of this text, let me ask you, to whom is he speaking? He's speaking to Christians. That's the most immediate context. He's reminding Christians that if you continue to live in sin, the wages of your sin is, is death. Well, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? What does he mean talking to Christians and saying the wages of sin is death? Is he talking about the possibility that Christians who choose to serve 
unrighteousness, they choose to go back to that old master that they don't have to, but they go back. Could they be putting their life in jeopardy? Okay, yeah, yeah. Remember how he said in 1 John 5, if any man see a brother sin a sin unto death, and there is a sin unto death for the Christian. Can you think of anywhere in Scripture where Christians died physically because they chose sin? Ananias and Sapphira, right? They lied in the church service. Can you think one that's very pertinent to what we're doing tonight? The Corinthian church. Remember, he says, because you took communion in an unworthy fashion, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and some even, they sleep, they're dead. So in the most intense form of what this, this text is talking to believers and saying, guys, you got to get serious about the consequences. We mentioned it this morning. Keep in mind, sin is a terrible, has a terrible, poses a terrible problem for us then if we get involved with it, if we choose to engage in it, and the idea is continuing in it as a lifestyle, if we choose to make that our lifestyle, he says there's terrible consequences. We choose. And that consequence could even lead to a a physical chastisement. Let me add to that. If saved, you have freedom's power to stop serving sin now in the days ahead. He mentioned that this morning in the first part of the verse. He, we mentioned it again this evening where he's making it clear in verse 16 that you have the choice, verse 16, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. He says in verse 19, the second half of the verse, he says, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. And so you do have the power to stop. Before you were saved, you didn't. That's verse 20. But you do have the ability to say no. Therefore, therefore, let's bring this all together. What's he concluding? He's saying, therefore, believer, what do you choose? Okay, you have the freedom to choose. What's the obvious conclusion? Choose to serve Christ. Okay, that brings us to that that fourth statement. Choose to serve Christ. Choose to serve Christ. That's what he's getting at in this entire passage. He says, choose, and, and look at verse 19. He's making it, it's a cool way that he says it. I speak after the manner of men. For as you have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity. What's he mean by that? You remember how you used to sin? You used to do it really with, with gusto. You used to really go out and party hardy. He says, in that same way, he says, now, with that same zeal, that same gusto, that same energy, so now yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. That's what he means in that text. To serve Christ, how do you do that? Well, the text gives us an inclination. And he mentions it back in in that, oops, I want to back up here. He mentions it where he says, you have become obedient, verse 16, obedient unto righteousness. Well, obedient unto righteousness is implying there is some type of rules, regulations. And he has already made that comment now in verse 17, for from the heart that, that form, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Interesting, interesting phrasing that he uses. That form of doctrine is the idea that there's been delivered to you who are wondering if we are free from all law. He says, no, there's been a form of doctrine delivered unto you. There has been something already given and you have listened to it. It's brought you to where you're free and it's given you that, that, that knowledge that you're free and that ability. Has that form of doctrine then all of a sudden you've been eradicated? No. 
No, you still have to live unto obedience. Obedience to what? To that form of doctrine. Now that word that he uses for form is an interesting word. The word that he uses in this text, where he says that form, it has the idea of a mold. It's like your jello molds. Okay, you put that liquid in and it forms it. It's like the Play-Doh that we know, the Play-Doh factory. You put the Play-Doh in, you press it down, and it forms it. It's like the cookie cutters that you use, whether it be with Play-Doh or cookie dough, and it forms it. He is saying in this text, let the doctrine form you. If you're going to obey Christ like you did in the past when it first came to you, continue to be obedient to that formation of the scriptures in your life. Let them mold you. Let them make you. Let them press you out so that you become everything that you're supposed to be. It's not that we're free of all rules. We have the freedom to choose. Will I follow God's word? The form of doctrine that will mold me, that will make me, that will change the way I think, the way I act, the way I parent, that will mold me, the way I speak. The way I worship, the way I I respond to trials. Let it form you and mold you so that you are more and more serving Christ and being obedient unto producing the fruits of righteousness. Tremendous text. Tremendous analogy that he's making. You have the freedom to choose. Will I obey God's word or not? Choose it. Choose it. Obey the word. There, Ray Stedman, who writes about evangelism a lot of different things, talked about how he was in Florida. One day he was walking down the street and he saw this guy walking along boardwalk area and he had one of those, I don't know what you call them, those, si- those sandwich billboards? One each side. What's it called? Okay, several of you are saying different names. So there, you, you know what I mean. And he said on the, first, on the front side, it said, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. He thought that was pretty commendable. The guy looked decent and looked like, you know, he was, and he was handing out literature. And when he passed and walked by, the other side, the back side said, or actually it asked this question, whose slave are you? And his point that he's making is, we're slaves. All of us are slaves all the time. We choose, according to this text, who we're going to serve. Correct? Every day we're making the choice. We're making the choice. Do I serve Christ by following his word that forms me? Or do I serve laziness? Do I serve money? Am I motivated? Am I moved? Am I controlled by what other people are thinking? Does that ever control individuals? Yeah. Do we ever, do we ever, does personal pleasures ever control individuals? Do, does debt control individuals? Do family members dictate how some Christians live? Yeah. Okay, what about this? Are people ever a slave, a slave to an addiction? You know, we joke about it, how something so small filled with tobacco can control somebody. You know, something in a bottle can absolutely dominate a person's, their interests, their thoughts, their actions. Same thing can be true of emotions. Some people are slaves to their emotions. Rather than them control the emotion, the emotion controls them. They get radically upset so quickly, and all of a sudden they're so angry and so upset that they lose control of their mouth, their responses, their actions. Does, are some people controlled by the habit of foul language? They can't even talk without cursing, and they don't even realize they're doing it. Is, is it possible that some people are a slave to lust, a slave to gossip? 
That it controls an, uh, an angry attitude towards another person, controls them, how they respond, how they act, where they go, how they, how they in a crowd, they avoid another individual. Those things happen. And you and I are supposed to say, wait a minute, I'm not to be a slave to those things that would make me act wrong. I'm supposed to be a slave to Jesus Christ. Slavery to Christ is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And I'm supposed to be controlled by Christ. Give you an illustration of, of somebody who was not controlled by, by something good, but by something bad. There's a story that comes out of the 14th century in the Duchy of Belgium. There was an individual, his name was Reynold III, who was in charge of that duchy. His younger brother Edward revolted against him, took over the rule and the reign. He took his older brother Reynold and he put him in this, pa- in this palace that he built and he said, you can live here. And the day that you're getting out after he built it, he had him go inside and then built in, closed it. He said, the day you get out, you can have your authority back, you can have your throne back. The problem with Reynold is, Reynold was a pretty big guy. And so his brother told him, once you can get out of the door and walk out, you get your kingdom back. And then every day, the younger brother had the most delicious foods delivered to this palace. And as a result, the brother didn't lose the weight to get out, but he got bigger. And so whenever somebody would come and say, what you're doing to your brother is cruel, you have him imprisoned, his response was, he's not in prison. He can get out any time he chooses. But he didn't have self-control, or being controlled, what you and I would say, controlled to the Spirit, that he could overcome. And he ended up staying in this prison for years and years and years in this food prison that he created himself by just yielding to that. Listen, before we cast too many stones at Reynold, what prison do you go in and shut the door behind you and say, it's going to control me this day? You want to stop that. You want to stop that, that control of that anger, that lust, or that bad speech. You want, to, you want to stop that bitterness. You want to be controlled by Christ. You want to do what that story that comes out of the Civil War area, 1850, a guy who, was, who had struck well over in San Francisco, and he's traveling back and decides he's going to head back to England. And as he's coming back across this minor decided he would take a trip along the southern part of the United States, and he ended up down in New Orleans. And when he ended up down in New Orleans, he was going to catch a trip that would go around the coast of the U.S., and then eventually over to England, where he was going to spend some time. And being in New Orleans, he found himself in the midst of slave marketing. And he had never seen it before. He was appalled by it. And he was so appalled, he was captivated, and he saw that they were doing an auctioning that day. And as the story goes, he goes and he sees the auction block, and he's listening to some people in the crowd, and they bring up what he said was just this beautiful, 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 just this gorgeous young black lady. And some of the men next to this, this miner, they're talking about this gal and how they're going to bid on her and the vulgarities coming out of their mouth. He was so, uh, found it so abhorrent. He eventually, in the course of the bid, he all of a sudden bid out a number that was the highest number that anybody ever paid for an individual. And they were dumbfounded. They said, sir, do you have that money? Yes, you've got the gal. She's yours. And when he went up and helped the lady down from the steps, she spit in his face. She was so angry at him. 
She, and so he takes her to, down towards the lawyer's office and he bre- gets the papers prepared, the papers of freedom. And she is so angry and she is under her breath. But when he turns to her to give her her papers of freedom, she even tries to hit him. She doesn't fully understand what he's done. But when she finally comprehends that he hands her her papers of freedom, she just breaks. And for the first time in months, she cries and cries and cries. And you know what her response to that man was? I am going to serve you. And I will gladly be your servant from here on out until something may change drastically. But for now, I am more than willing to serve you voluntarily. You and I have been freed by the greatest of sacrifices, the greatest of prices paid. Our response should be one of thanksgiving and gratitude. But not just here, but in our hearts saying, tomorrow morning, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to serve you. The next, the, the, tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to be your slave. I'm going to let your word form me, mold me. Do, and we choose. Tomorrow we will choose who we will serve. Tuesday we will choose who we will serve. And here's the question you ask yourself this entire week. Whose slave am I? Whose slave am I? Am I serving the Lord or am I serving sin and self?